If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we will be beginning reading verses 9 through 20 and, and ex- examining those today. If you would join me in reading God's Word, I'll be reading, reading from the New International Version. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would uh, speak to us, that we might hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, this vision is for the churches. It's for us, that we might experience your ministry among us by your Spirit. Amen and amen. We are saved by grace, a free gift. Yet, grace always makes a claim on our lives. It demands something from us. Jesus, for instance, ate and drank with sinners, even tax collectors. He he said, your sins are forgiven. His grace was evident and amazing, but it always made a demand or a claim upon their lives. Some examples that you're probably familiar with. Follow me. Go and sin no more. Go and do likewise. Forgive even as you have been forgiven. Give to the one who asks of you. Love your enemies and do good to those who mistreat you. Jesus' grace always makes a claim on our lives. 
Grace never justifies sin. It justifies the sinner and promotes just living toward God and neighbor. It always makes a claim and continues to do so throughout our lives as we experience God's grace. One New Testament scholar describes the popular approach to the book of Revelation as, quote, a story of tragic misinterpretation, end quote. Making it mostly about future events, this approach neuters any claims Christ may make on us since they are, accordingly, not about us. They're not given to us. At best, the so-called letters to the churches might have application, but since we can't relate to their issues, once again we neuter their claims. One book claiming to help us understand Revelation illustrates the point of the problem, asserting, quote, The book of Revelation is a closed book to many people. In it, the Apostle John is given a preview of the end times. And then he's about to tell us we need to approach it a certain way, and it's that very approach that I'm about to read from him that is what closes it to people. It is important to understand that the Lord has two distinctly separate peoples, His earthly people, Israel, and His heavenly people, the church. He's probably never been to our church. Or he'd realize that we are just as earthly as anyone else. (laughs) Need help. In Revelation, the church is seen in chapters 1, 2, 3, and it reappears again in chapters 19 to 22. The other chapters deal with Israel and the nations. In other words, he just erased chapters 14 through 18. He erases them. They're gone. They do not belong to you. And therefore, he has silenced whatever claims that are made upon you in those chapters. The grace that they give and the demands that they contain have been taken away from us if we look at the book of Revelation that way. And the consequence of that, if you just stop and think about it, we are told by Paul that all Scripture that is sufficient for life and godliness, it's sufficient, right? Well, if we take some of it away, then it no longer is sufficient. It's slightly insufficient. And so what has been done with the book of Revelation, in a lot of ways, has created an insufficiency of Scripture in our lives. Are you tracking with me there? Now, we we could talk about the theological problems in that last guy's statement. His, His two people approach... Two people of God approach is popular. Um, Late great planet Earth, left behind. Uh, It's new with origins in the 19th century. And it does not represent what the majority of Christians, either in church history or quite possibly not even in the world today, believe. Be harder to prove the last one, but the first one is easy. My approach that I'm going to be presenting to you as we look at the book of Revelation, I've got news for you. It is not new. In fact, it's quite old. It's an attempt to get rid of the fangles and newfangled theology. I I know there's no such word as fangles, but if there's newfangled, there has to be fangles is my my logic. I'll be fighting against our cultural fascination with the novel, and I'll be pushing against that current in my approach, that, that trend toward everything new and fascinating. Because what's at stake 
is the sufficiency of Scripture and ultimately the grace of God in our lives with the claims that it makes upon us. So what claims does this book make on our lives? What claims does this particular text, which is what we can address today, make upon our lives? This vision of Jesus that we just read from the first chapter that John has as his first vision of many. What claims does it make? We're going to look at it under three headings. Um, The first, John's prophetic calling. The second, Jesus' priestly ministry. And finally, Christ's promise and John's task. Christ's promise and John's task. So under that first heading, John's prophetic calling. I... John, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John identifies with the people in the churches as a brother and a sharer or a companion in three things which are ours in Jesus. Aren't you glad that you have inherited something in Jesus? Let's look at the three things that we inherit in Jesus. The suffering. You could translate that word, the affliction, the tribulation, the oppression. I mean, I'm just trying to give you the broad range of meaning that's there. It's the word that we often see translated tribulation or affliction. Here, suffering. It's oppression. Those are ours in Jesus. The kingdom, that's the reign of Christ. We inherit the reign of Christ in Jesus. The endurance, NIV, patient endurance, it's one word. They're just trying to expand on its meaning, that's fine. Bearing up under that suffering, bringing about the reign of Christ by doing so. You see, these are not three unconnected things, it's a package deal. Three facets of the life of a Jesus follower in the world. One one cannot, in other words, exercise kingdom rule apart from suffering and endurance. You cannot exercise kingdom rule apart from suffering and endurance. Now we know from Paul's letters that the Corinthians certainly attempted to, (laughs) for which he, we we might say, softly mocked them (laughs) in his letter. We tend to think, I want the kingdom, but I hope I don't have to have the affliction or or, or need the endurance. But it's no accident that kingdom falls between affliction and endurance. Our suffering is not counterproductive to the kingdom's advance, but a necessary element of it. Our suffering is not counterproductive to the kingdom's advance, but a necessary element of it. This suffering, this affliction, this tribulation is not some future event that will happen once you know, the church age is over, but it's John's and the church's present experience. They are ours in Jesus, he said. The required response of the Christ follower is endurance, the response to the suffering, the affliction, the tribulation. It is endurance. So we've already gotten a claim here, haven't we? A demand upon our lives. The demand is 
that we renew our minds to think differently about how God's kingdom advances in the world. That we think differently, because, I don't know about you, my natural inclination, if I start talking about the kingdom of God, my natural inclination is to think that it advances in the world as we get bigger, better, more popular, more exciting. I don't naturally think God's kingdom advances in the world as we suffer and have to bear up under it. So I'm required to renew my mind. And the New Testament's a good source of that, uh, of the resource to do that. So. so rather than seeing suffering through our pragmatic American lens, which tells us something must be wrong, we have to change direction, we must now see God's reign as being accomplished through it. And by the way, that's hard. Let's look at John, picking up in the middle of verse 9. John says, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is an expert witness. We're going to call witnesses to the stand. Well, you want a good one. You don't want one whose witness doesn't really matter. John's an expert witness. How do we know? Well, we, we read right here, he was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. You see, in chapter 1, verse 5, last week's text, the first title that's ascribed to Christ there is the faithful witness. Well, John, too, is a faithful witness. He's on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony that he offered about Jesus, presumably about the resurrection and very likely in a court of law, which is why he's on Patmos. We speak about, you know, I'm going witnessing. How many of y'all have ever thought, I'm going witness? Or you talk about people, they go witnessing a lot. Have you used that language? You heard it? You're familiar with it, right? It's common. Nothing inherently wrong with it, but it, but it can be a, a tad misleading or, you know, help us misunderstand things because it... Imagine you get a summons to go, there's a trial, and you're being summoned as a witness. And so the day of, your, of the trial that you're supposed to show up, you, you grab your summons and somebody says, what are you doing? Well, I'm going witnessing. <laughs> That's what you're doing. You're offering a testimony, a witness about something which you experienced. In Acts... Paul frequently bears witness to the resurrection of Jesus on trial before the Jews or the Romans. Different contexts. Peter instructs believers in his epistle to always be ready to give an answer for the hope that they had. In other words, you may have to testify as to why you live as you do one day. Be prepared to be faithful. Be prepared to be faithful. We tend to focus on our salesmanship. We need to really get good techniques for sharing the gospel. They would not have focused on that. They would have focused on faithfulness. Not to cave to fear when asked why I live the way I do. Because potentially I could have things harm me. I, I would very likely, most of them wouldn't suffer some great persecution or be killed, but they would very likely lose income. And they were already on the, on, you know, just the threat of existence, living right there at the, the edge of non-existence. And yet, to profess Christ often meant a loss of income to them. Let's be reasonable, they might think. <laughs> 
A lot of times people find out what I do, and they, they find out that I was in sales and that I'm now a pastor, and one of the first things they'll say is, well, that's sales, isn't it? No. No, actually, it's not. I, I know what sales is. By the way, if you want to make money, don't get into the ministry. Sales, now, that's a good place to make money. I, I did find that out. <clears throat> but, but no, not this. And no, I'm not selling something. My ro- role here is to be faithful to the testimony of Scripture. John is on the island of Patmos. Now, for about a century and a half or even a little more, Patmos was considered a desolate island. And the idea was that John is out there isolated and alone. Now, truer to history, we now know Patmos was actually very much populated. Not heavily. It had a town and people and life. It wasn't a huge island. small It was used as a place for exile because it certainly limited people from spreading their anti-empire message around the empire. Generally, it was an option if, if, you know, somebody was of some status in the community, they want to kill them, so we'll send them out there and get rid of them, make it easy on on us, you know, kind of thing. Now, though some exiles would have worked in quarries, it's unlikely that John was you know, getting, digging rocks out or anything at his age. He was probably just maybe a lot like Paul when he was in uh, house arrest, under house arrest. Lived his life but had confines to what he could do. He was on Patmos. His greatest loss was that he was removed from the churches and the mission, both of which many Christians do all by themselves today. But for John, it was suffering. For John, it was suffering. And when was he there? Well, when did this vision occur is a better question. On the Lord's Day. Don't miss the significance of that statement. On the Lord's Day. He isn't merely, the the, the vision and what John's doing isn't merely about what day of the week it was. When he says it's on the Lord's Day, he's not trying to say, oh, it was on Sunday, just so you know, give you a, a historical reference point. Two good commentaries that I have on Revelation, rather thorough, don't even discuss the phrase. It's not even so much as repeated in their commentary. A third rephrases it as the first day of the week without any other comment. A week ago, Friday, I was in a coffee shop working, um, and a young lady, I'd guess in her 30s, um, tiny, wearing her Bucks hat and a red shirt. You know, after all, that was the first week of NFL football. And her red shirt declared, Sundays are for football. Culturally, Sundays belong to us for leisure. Time is all about economics, of course, in our world. We've been sold the idea that Sunday is for football to build a multi-billion dollar industry. The Sunday evening NFL worship service begins with its priestess dancing and singing provocatively for the worshipers who have gathered. Church growth gurus tell us that the church has to compete with that, and many try. Worship services begin to look like a cheap imitation of Carrie Underwood's introduction to Sunday night football. But even the effort reveals that we think it is their day, not the Lord's day. We are standing in old creation time, time which has been robbed from God, and we're trying to live there. 
John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Not the Empire's Day or the Emperor's Day, the Lord's Day. He doesn't call it Sunday. He marks the day by whose time it is. It's the Lord's Day. That's whose time it is. Amen. You've seen the t-shirts and various other things that have a business name or one's age, etc., etc. Established 19-whatever. One of the earliest one of these was basically Aeropostale, 1987, right? Boom. It's how I knew what you know, my first daughter's year of birth was. I just, Aeropostale. It's just easy to remember. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> The Lord's Day was established by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's when it was established. It is the first day because it is the start of a new creation. The first creation or transformation of the world from uh, tohu vavohu, from chaos and emptiness, began on day one. Genesis chapter one. And the new creation was established with the resurrection of Jesus. John Mark's time in the new creation, which we will learn later, is coming down out of heaven from God. It is the kingdom, the reign of God, the one that is currently coexisting with suffering and endurance, because the old creation is still here. There's an overlap of the ages. Our nature is to try to force this book into an old creation timeline. But it doesn't belong on an old creation timeline. When is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? When is this going to happen? We entirely miss the point. It's in the new creation time that it's happening. Which is already coming down out of heaven from God in his people on earth. Has been for 2,000 years. New creation time is different. It's not about life between the dashes. In old creation time, time is money and therefore power. Time is about progress, which is what we claim we are doing as we deface the planet. For the empire, that was Rome, but here called Babylon, because that is the empire that throughout history has ruled in this world. It was their day. They were in the sunshine. The church, well, not so much. But John isn't on the emperor's time. It's the Lord's day. He's on the Lord's time. And that's different. As we gather on the Lord's day, we are saying that our time is marked by new creation time. It's intended to change how we view time. Our coming on Sunday, gathering for worship, taking time out, is intended to change how we view worship. And guess what? The one thing we should not be doing while we're on the Lord's time. What have I got to do next? We're, we're, we're anchoring ourselves back in the old creation. Or as the, the, the Filipinos said, Westerners wear God on their wrist. John, he's a prophetic seer. If you want to think of him in biblical terminology. Read verse 10. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And by the way, just a side note, we'll get into this later, but to point out, everything in this book was sent to the seven churches, not just the next two chapters. 
This whole set of visions that he got on the Lord's Day is what he was to write and send to the churches. John was in the Spirit and heard a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, John's experience mimics and mirrors, if you will, uh, that of Old Testament Scripture-writing prophets. We could go through a whole list of them, but I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. Ezekiel. Then the Spirit lifted me up, we read in Ezekiel 3, and I heard behind me the voice of a great earthquake. Or, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. This voice, like a trumpet, also has implications about who is speaking. It's the voice of Yahweh. It, this scene is saying John is a prophet. He is to write these things. They are to be considered scripture. They are from God. They are from the voice of Yahweh. So this scene introduces John as the prophet through whom all the visions proceed and lead to the opening vision about the one from whom he receives them. And that brings us to Jesus' priestly ministry. Verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Now, there's a pattern here. I'm going to point it out, but I'll point it out every time we get to it, at least if I notice it. could be there more than I'll notice, but I know of at least two more significant times that this pattern is used. And it's important to recognize. First, you'll see that John hears something, which creates an expectation in John, and of course it creates an expectation in the audience who's hearing what he wrote, right? So we, we, he hears something, therefore we hear it, and John and us, we, we have an expectation based on what is heard. Now, we're so familiar with the book, we've kind of started to ignore those expectations because we kind of know the other side of the story, and so we just forget about the expectation, but they're important. And then, after John looks to see what he heard, in this case he turns, what he sees flips the expectation on its head. Just completely turns it upside down. So note here, John hears a loud voice like a trumpet, leading him to expect to see some kind of theophany, Yahweh, appearing. Maybe a burning bush, or smoke and fire like Moses saw on Sinai, or maybe a wild manifestation like Ezekiel saw in uh, Ezekiel 1 verse 4. That was a wild experience. Wheels within wheels and all sorts of things. Break the limits of human language. He, he turns to see, and then there's a repetition of his turning. When he turns, he saw something that flips his expectation. He sees what? Someone like a son of man, a human. So I hear a voice like a trumpet, God, Yahweh, and I turn. I see one like a son of man, a young man. But not just any human. He's a priest. You see, he's standing among seven lampstands. Now, the lampstand was one of the furnishings of the tabernacle and later the temple. One walking among the lampstands of the temple and wearing a robe dressed like this one is dressed with a sash. There is a name. I mean, remember, our Bible, this is a Jewish book. 
We don't just start in the middle of something. This isn't a Gentile book. It's a Jewish book. And in Jewish culture, there's a name for a person who dresses that way and walks among lampstands. It's called a priest, a high priest. That's what he sees. A high priest. Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah 4, after the exile, so you know, go through David, all the kings, Israel and Judah have been sent into exile. Judah is in Babylon. Israel's lost, the northern kingdom. And then they're returned, and you're familiar with the rebuilding, the order to rebuild the temple, and it's being rebuilt, but it's uh, quite lackluster, to say the least, for those who were familiar with the original. And, and it never really experiences that time when God fills it with His presence. Remember when, like, well, the tabernacle, and then later when Solomon's temple was built, and they dedicate it, and then the glory of the Lord comes, right? And it's just like you can't even stand. That doesn't happen with the second temple. It's lacking all of that. Well, Zechariah, he's prophesying during that time, maybe during the construction of this lackluster temple. And he has a vision in which he sees a golden lampstand. Now, in his vision, the lampstand is rep- representative of the whole temple. But it, represents, it also represents the true temple because, you see, the one they were looking at just didn't seem to ring true for them. So it's pointing forward to God creating a true temple, which we know, Ephesians chapter 2, to be the church. And if it's the true temple, it's therefore the true Israel and is in that vision connected to two branches or trees, if you will, that, that are two witnesses representing Israel's bearing witness to the world. So that when we get to Revelation and the lampstand is now seen as now seven lampstands instead of one with seven branches, it's now seven. It turns out to be the churches. Well, it should be no surprise because the church is the true temple and hence it's a part of the true Israel. It represents not one people group, but all. Hence not one, but seven. There's another image we can't miss here. The phrase, like a son of man, is from Daniel 7. We looked at this last week briefly, but I'm going to look at it again because it's significant and important in all of our New Testament and certainly here in Revelation. After hearing about the beasts of the earth, and this is going back to Daniel 7, the beasts of the earth, the empires, we read of God's answer to their destructive, oppressive behavior. And that's in Daniel 7.13. In my vision at night I looked. And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So, so get this. Just kind of put yourself in the mind of Daniel. After a flying lion of prey, picture that, ferocious lion, not behind like a wall at the zoo, but in the open. He flies, so don't think you're getting away. A flying lion lion of prey, a bear with bones of flesh hanging out its mouth, blood's dripping off, a four-headed flying leopard, and finally, a monster looking more like a transformer that crushes victims with its iron teeth. After those four monsters, beasts, if you will, God's answer is a young priest. (laughs) 
Let's look at his priestly garments. Revelation 1 again, starting in verse 13. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in uh, a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Uh, 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 let Let me, you know... Spoiler alert, I guess. When you see Jesus, he ain't going to look like this. He's just not. Okay? Because this vision is not describing for us how Jesus looks in order that we will recognize him when we see him so that we know what he looks like. That's not the purpose of this vision. It is about the nature of his present ministry for the church. It's about the nature of his present ministry for the church. Paul writes to the Ephesians in the end of chapter 1. He says that Jesus is head over all things through the church. Here in Revelation, we discover in this book that Jesus is head over everything in heaven and earth, ruler of the kings of the earth, but... As we see right here in chapter 1, his rule is through the church, which is uh, why the second vision has to do with prophetic messages to the churches, chapters 2 and 3. But again, note, Jesus rules in the midst of the candlesticks. He rules through the church. As we live out his will, as we live out his kingdom, his reign is made manifest in the midst of suffering and endurance. As we live it out. The robe and sash or priestly garments as noted earlier. It's uh, the, the word there is basically foot robe. Uh, meaning it goes down to the feet. It's the same word used to describe Aaron's robe as high priest in Exodus. The golden sash reminds us of the gold used in the holiest parts of the tabernacle and temple. The closer we, one got to the ark the more gold there was. It's, this is a special priest. Very unique. The hair on his head being white like wool is taken from Daniel again. Chapter 7 again, verse 9. When, when Daniel writes, I looked, thrones were set, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. And a few verses later there in Daniel, the one like a son of, the Son of Man joins the Ancient of Days at that throne and is receiving worship just like the Ancient of Days is. Like how'd they let that in a Jewish Bible? But they did. It's right there. This one like a son of man in John's vision is beginning to look a lot like the Ancient of Days, is he not? Voice like a trumpet, hair white like wool. He's beginning to look and sound a lot like the Ancient of Days. His eyes... We're like a flaming fire. That speaks of his role as judge. In Revelation 19, 11, and 12, when Jesus is riding forth for justice and to make war on the oppressors, it describes him with eyes like a flaming fire. These are eyes that will see right through you, which is both terrifying and comforting at once.
The priest exercises his duties as judge, this priest. He tends his lampstands, the churches, by seeing them, correcting what needs to be corrected, and judging what is not repented of. His feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace. That speaks of the purity, all the dross being removed. Unlike the empires of the world which stand on feet of iron and clay mixed together in Daniel chapter 2, these feet are pure, not mixture. The world's kingdoms have a weak foundation of impurity. Christ's empire stands on moral purity. We'll see in the next couple of chapters that he intends for, that, for the church to be built on a foundation of purity as well. That voice being like the sound of rushing waters draws from Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 21 where the sound like rushing waters describes the voice of the Almighty. Again, he's beginning to look a lot like the Ancient of Days, the Eternal One. The sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth is, of course, the Word of the Almighty, the Word of God. You see, this, this one does battle by speaking truth in the face of the empire's power, like he did with Pilate when he was about to be crucified. His face shining like the sun, full force, is drawn from Judges chapter 5, verse 31, where his picture describes the victory of those who love God purely, their victory over God's enemies. You see, Christ is being shown here to be the one that will conquer His enemies, both within the church and without. Judgment begins, as the author of Hebrews says, with the house of God. Christ's priestly ministry aims to purify our worship and our witness. It aims to purify our worship and our witness. Our our series title is Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. It's about our worship and it's about our witness. Christ intends to purify both. And this is the one from whom all the visions of this book come on that Lord's day. And finally, we have a a closing section. Christ's promise and John's task. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. John's response is quite natural. Who wouldn't fall down as though dead? But pay attention to Christ's promise and its encouragement and comfort. Do not be afraid. Why not? Because of who makes the promise. I am the first and the last. This high priest. This one like a son of man. This one that we know from so many other places in the New Testament is Jesus. This one is the first and the last. That gets back to what we read of God the Father earlier in the same chapter of Revelation chapter 1 where he says, I am the one who is. In other words, I am the one who was active in your history, and I am the one who always will be active in what comes. Reference last week's message. 
Now Jesus is identifying as the first and the last, the eternal one, the one in charge of all history. And Isaiah, Yahweh says that he is the first and the last. Jesus says he is the first and the last. The living one is the I am. The past was that he was dead. I was dead. I was. Well, I was dead. Now and into the future, I am alive forever and ever. New creation. So here's the promise. Though the emperor or the governors of the various places appear to decide about death or maybe it's disease or calamity that decide. They they lived in a world where disease and calamity were constantly taking people from this life. You see, though all those things appear to be in charge of death and the grave, Jesus is the one who opens and closes death. So what's the promise in that? That we too will be raised and that nothing can overtake us which He does not ultimately rule over if we are faithful in our worship and witness. Amen? Amen? 19 and 20. Write, therefore, John is told, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars is that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. More on that next week. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Sadly, many have taken verse 19 as the sort of controlling verse of the entire book. Making it say far more than it was ever intended to say. The claim is that what John had seen is everything up to verse, through verse 18. This is how this idea works. What is now are the next two chapters, so verse 20 through the end of chapter 3, the messages to the churches, and what will take place later, in other words, in some distant future place, they would tell you, distant even to us potentially, are a set of events that belong to another time. Well, that's, first off, unhelpful, and second, it's extremely artificial. There's nothing in the text to make us think that way. Nothing about the text that would make us think that. Unless you approach the text with that schema in your mind, you would never get it from the text. I mean, why that division? Why not make what is now up through chapter 20, and then 21 and 22, what will yet be the new heaven and the new earth, what is to come? Or alternatively, why not intersperse past, present, and future throughout the book? So that in Revelation 12, where it goes back to the birth of Jesus, that's past, but then it ends with you know, persecution, and then there's judgment. Well, it's past, present, and future interwoven throughout the book. Why not do that? Well, I'll say this. All of those miss the point. All of those miss the point. We should hear verse 19 like other verses, or shall I say, similar Old Testament calling text. This is a calling text. John is getting his calling. He's being assigned a mission as a prophet. And we have all sorts of examples of these in the Bible. And one of them in particular is eerily similar to this one. And so if we compare it to the one that's eerily similar to this one, we might get a clue as to what it means. Israel's prophets being commissioned, they were told to write what they had seen. 
And of course, that refers to the whole book, ultimately. That is, what he saw that the, on that Lord's Day when he was in the Spirit, the whole book, that is what he is to write. It consists of things that already are and things that are on the verge of happening right then and at that time. The language is right out of Daniel 10, with a twist. So Daniel receives a vision in Daniel 10, after which he falls down and a heavenly being touches him, raising him up and telling him not to be afraid. Sound familiar? Like verbatim out of what we just read with John. Then an angel tells Daniel that he is about to receive visions which will be written down, but that they concern a future time, a time not yet, after the vision he is told, that it is sealed up and is for the time of the end. Okay. Well, John is told the same, except there's one substantial difference. Instead of being told that it concerns a distant future time that is sealed, John is told that it is both now and taking place immediately after. The NIV's later misses the point. It's just simply after this, after this, uh, after these things. But in chapter 1, verse 1, we are told when that is, really, because there we are told that it must take place quickly, or we might say right away. <laughs> right away. So in chapter 5 and 6, in fact, and we'll get there eventually, the seals are opened while John is watching. They're not sealed and put away for a future time, but they're opened while John is watching. The point is, in Revelation, that Daniel's end times had already begun in John's day. So when people ask me, are we in the end times? My answer is assuredly yes. And we have been for 2,000 years. Peter announced that on the day of Pentecost. It's quite clear in Acts chapter 2. But then, of course, the question follows, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, I do, and it's a terrible question. As some people say there are no bad questions. Well, that one really is. It really is. It's a terrible question. Because we've been flatly told that we will not know. And anyone who tries to deceive you into thinking they do know is a deceiver. Next question. John's revelation was not about some distant future set of events. It was about what began to unfold with the ascension of Christ and the mission of the church. I'm going to say it again, because this is the driving point of this sermon. So capture this, and you've got the main thing here. John's revelation was not about some future distant set of events. It was about what began to unfold with the ascension of Christ to reign at the right hand of God and the mission of the church, which he rules over. And this revelation, this book makes claims on us. It claim, claims from the Lord Jesus, who is our high priest, who judges us in mercy, extending, transforming grace to change. It makes claims on us. We must hear what the Spirit says to us as his churches in this book. Let me just, a couple of takeaways for your study of Revelation and, and as you think of it in the future. Um, one. Revelation is soaked in Old Testament imagery. I hope you picked up on that today. Like, every phrase has an Old Testament counterpart, and I'm sure I passed over many. That would be worth noting, but time doesn't allow. And those are the key for understanding the book, not the 6 o'clock news, which I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but, you know, whatever news you watch. 
Revelation doesn't operate on old creation timelines, but new. Revelation doesn't operate on old creation timelines, but new. It's about the time we are in, as well as the time John, Paul, Peter, and James were in also. And finally, to bring us back to what's important for us right now, here today, John's vision of Christ is not about what Jesus looks like, but about who he is and his present ministry to his church. That means us. He is holy. In moral purity and justice and just governance, he rules as he walks in the midst of his people as their priest. He sees with eyes that burn through the facades that we are all prone to put up. And so today, I just want us in response to this message, to pause and take some time. I ended a bit early so that we could do this, to take time to contemplate what Christ is speaking to the churches through His Spirit today, to you. If He has eyes that are flames of fire, that see into our lives, what is He seeing? What is He calling you to repent of? What is He commending So let's just take some time. I'm going to invite the the worship team up, but they're not going to get us singing right away. We're just going to pause, and you can can kneel where you're at. You can sit in your chair. You can come down front in the steps here if you want. You can go to the back corner for all I care, but let's just take a few minutes and prayerfully consider what Christ speaks to us as we gather in the Lord's time on in new creation time on the Lord's Day. Lord, uh, as we just take a moment and pause before you open our hearts to hear your voice, help us to see what you see and give us the grace to be transformed into how you've made us to be a new creation.